I actually only have really one good solid question for him, which is, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> And welcome back to the twenty or episode twenty three of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this week we have six programmers on our panel. Uh, we'll start out with our guest. We have the amazing Kent Beck, who is the author of the book we're reviewing this week, uh, "Small Talk Best Practice Patterns." Sorry, I had to look at the book. Uh, Kent, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll introduce the other panelists. Well, you guys are welcome to just call me amazing if you want. Um, I've been okay. a programmer, for <laughs> or, or or just the. That's also fine. Um, so I've been a programmer for. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day, almost forty years, and I am um, currently uh, employed uh, several places. I'm contracting at Facebook, um, and no, I can't change the profile back. And I'm uh, also chief scientist at uh, Iterate, which is a small consultancy in Oslo. Oh, interesting. All right. Um, well, well, I think one of the th- my first introductions to you was also some of the stuff you did with extreme programming and things like that. So um, not just what Kent's doing, but what he's done. He's contributed to the community in a lot of ways for a lot of years. And so we really appreciate him, not just for this book. Um, uh, also on our panel, we have David Brady. Hi, I'm David Brady. I run Shiny Systems uh, Consulting. Well, Shiny Systems, anyway. And um, I blog at heartmindcode.com. And um, I'm doing my level best to contain my my squee at being on a call with Kent Beck. Um, Kent, I was a low-level Win32 programmer, C assembly programmer, and had been for about a decade and I was headed down the, the, the .NET rut um, at, at about the time that uh, XP Explained Embrace Change came out, and that book hit me like a thunderbolt. And then I and then I ran into like two weeks later Martin Fowler's refactoring book, and those two books permanently brain damaged me as a programmer, and I was unable to continue writing procedural static crappy C C plus plus code, um, and you know. 10 years, 11 years later, I'm now a Ruby programmer. Um, I still do, you know, a bunch of other languages. I picked up Smalltalk uh, at the beginning of this year, and so I actually uh, have read through the Best Practice Patterns book, and I think it's awesome. And uh, so, okay, so that's my my elegy for for Mr. Amazing. Um, I, sorry, I don't feel comfortable calling you on a first-name basis, but maybe later I'll start to call you the... Um, <laughs> And that's the end of my introduction, which is basically mostly me kissing up to Kent. <laughs> uh, induced brain damage. It sounds like a government program. Yes. Actually, one last thing, and that is that uh, I also do ADD casts with Pat Maddox. Several people have asked me if we're still doing that, and the answer is yes. We're just really, really swamped with the contract we're working on right now. All right. Also on our panel this week, we have James Edward Gray. Hey everybody, I'm James Edward Gray the second, and I literally learned small talk to read this book. Awesome. Also on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hey, Avdi here. Um, I uh, I'm chief aeronaut at Shiprise, and I blog on programming topics at avdi.org/devblog. And uh, since we're doing odes to Kent, um, I just want to say thank you uh, because. 
for for not unknowingly uh, participating in my computer science education. Um, I pretty much learned everything I know by spending hours and hours and hours reading WikiWiki. And uh, I know you're big, were and are a big contributor there. So thank you very much for that. Oh, I'm glad you found it helpful. All right. Also on our panel, we have Josh Susser. Hey, <clears throat> good morning. Oh, I'm still getting over a sore throat, so um, I'm a little froggy today. Um, so um, I'm, uh, let's see, I'm a former small talker. I actually, uh, uh, you, you can uh, blame or credit uh, Kent with a little of my career trajectory in that he uh, got me to come work at Apple and do small talk there. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you or Damn you, Kent. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, so it was uh, really nice to get to brush up on small talk and look at the book here. So that's enough about me. All right. And I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, two things that I want to mention. One is that uh, I have a testing Ruby or Rails course uh, that will start at the beginning of next month. And I also want to point out that uh, – when I was reading this book, I've been learning Objective-C to program on the iPhone, and I was I was struck with how similar some of the syntax and things were between Smalltalk and Objective-C. I don't complete think that... coincidence. Complete <laughs> coincidence. <laughs> Sorry. So, so anyway, I, I just thought I'd point that out. But uh, anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. Um, one thing that I wanted to point out real quick before we get going. It's just that when I picked up the book, I kind of expected it to be uh, uh, here's how you program small talk well. And that, you know, obviously I expected there to be some lessons that I could apply to Ruby. However, when I started reading it, it, it really struck me that what I was reading wasn't a book about small talk. It was a book about how to write good code and good object-oriented code. And so some of it's about uh, the expressiveness of your code and some of it's about um, how to manage objects and things like that, and uh, how to think about sending messages between objects. And so ultimately, um, the fact that it's centered around small talk is kind of just a feature rather than actually the center or focus of the book. So uh, anyway, anyone else have something to say? Yeah, kind of along those lines. Um, Kent, we're kind of obsessed with definitions, although it can often turn out kind of comical when we do try to define something. <laughs> um, but your book starts the same way. Uh, you actually go through and define... Uh, best practice, and then patterns, which uh, I, I'm particularly interested in the definition of patterns because, uh, you know, I think in programming, uh, we have so many ideas like uh, design patterns and then idioms and refactorings and stuff. So uh, I was just wondering if maybe you could talk about what are the patterns in your book? Uh, so are you asking about patterns sort of in general or the patterns in the book? Like the, the these specific patterns. Uh, yeah, I, I was asking more about the specific patterns in your book, but maybe it might be interesting of of why you chose that term, you know, in light of things like design patterns and stuff. Yeah, so so my involvement with patterns goes back to my undergraduate days, um, and I uh, I encountered uh, Christopher Alexander's uh, Timeless Way of Building which I couldn't afford. So I read standing up in the university of Oregon bookstore, you know, like uh, 45 minutes at a time. And then they'd kick me out and I'd come back a few days later and read a few more chapters. So I was familiar with that, that patterny style of describing stuff. And uh, a few years after I started 
programming I, the, I got this deja vu sense. Oh, I've programmed this before. Oh, isn't that what patterns is all about? So um, I tried and failed to apply the, the patterns style to to describing these recurring experiences I had in programming for six or seven years um, before anything really came out that was recognizably a pattern. I remember pretty clearly it was like 1988 when you showed me the Alexander books and started talking about patterns. Yes, that was that's the first published stuff. So Ward Cunningham and I were working at Tektronics and we were trying to apply these patterns ideas. Um, it, the, the basic um, premise is there are few unique problems and there are many, many recurring problems in any kind of endeavor and you want to apply creativity and uniqueness to the unique problems and you want to just for the problems that happen over and over again you want to just solve them the way that that usually works and not waste any time on it so the patterns are are trying to capture those moments where you just go oh i've written this before i know how to do this and it just rolls off your fingers that that's a beautiful application of make the hard things possible without making the simple things hard. Yeah. And, and it's even, you're trying to make the simple things uh, really easy. So the way I wrote this mm -hmm. book is, is I, uh, one day decided I'm not going to type another line of code. I'm not going to type a single character unless I know what pattern I'm following. So I would say, okay, wow. you know, what's, what's the name of this class? Uh, and it's, uh, I'm going to call it uh, contract. Well, why? Oh crap. So now I have to go and write the pattern about class naming. So, you know, I'd program for 15 seconds and then spend three hours trying to tease out what are all of the constraints on naming classes and why do I do it in this particular style? Okay. So now I have contract. You know, and and it's uh, uh, the the first message is uh, the first method is going to be a, a you know some kind of some way to create one. Oh well, now I have to go write the pattern. So I you know program for fifteen seconds. I'd write patterns for four hours. I'd program for another twelve seconds, and then spend three more hours writing a pattern. You might actually be the origin of the phrase "typing is not the bottleneck." Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I might. I say a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, like, you might be the cause. Like, somebody watching you might be, oh, oh God, typing yeah, is yeah. not the bottleneck. Have you seen Kent? <laughs> well, it was just, it was awful, right? For I, I was already comfortable with small talk, and I could just rip off, you know, applications. And it, I, I knew, you know, it was very, I felt very fluid. So it was torture to to like give all that up and try to say, okay, is there a rule behind what I'm doing now? And if so, let me write it down first. But at the end of the first week, I found that I was applying the same patterns that I'd already written down most of the time. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to know what kind of personal me daily meditation practice you had that enabled that level of introspection. Um, I am, I am in terror of not understanding stuff. I would say that's my, mo that's my big motivation. Okay. <laughs> when when I'm in a situation and I just don't understand what's going on, I, I have a, a great deal of anxiety. So 
in a case like this, having this set of patterns, you know, having a book that's like, okay, here's what I really do. Uh, I found that very, very comforting. Now, since then, I've tried to uh, uh, learn how to feel good about ambiguous situations, which is a whole different set of skills. And it's very, very valuable. But Especially programming still. Ruby. <laughs> I I'm, not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> anyway, after you, after you were going to say something. Uh, uh, something I, I noticed about the the uh, patterns in this book is that they're very low level. Um, they're they're at a level that I I formerly um, really thought of as as code construction or as idioms. Even um, I'm curious uh, your your thoughts on that. Um, are are patterns things that uh, that are pretty much just turtles all the way down? They are to me. I mean, I've been thinking in that style for however many years. Um, so it's very natural for me to see patterns at the level of architecture and patterns in design and patterns in user interface um, and patterns in coding, patterns in how I use Git, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, before we get into like some of the actual patterns, which I, I'm sure we'll definitely talk about, um, I thought I would mention, if I'm reading the copyright correctly, this book is 14 years old. Um, yes. And to put that in context, at one point in the book, Ken references Windows 3.0.1. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> if that kind of takes you back in time. Um, I, I was curious. I, I'll tell you that when I was reading it, I, I found myself worried that you were disappointed in how much we hadn't learned over that time period. Um, and so I, I guess I wanted to ask you, how well do you think the book has held up? Uh, fabulously well. I've been uh, very – like uh, in in getting ready for this conversation, I went and reviewed the book again, and there's very little that I would write differently. Which I think speaks speaks to the universality of what we're doing most of the time. Most of the, I mean, it's sort of good news, bad news. Most of the problems that programmers are dealing with are caused by programmers. Right. That's nice. and, true. and I I agree with you that it's held up very well over time. I mean, I never, uh, I, I'm I probably one of the few people on this podcast that never went through the small talk phase. So I, I didn't learn objects in small talk. I, I learned them probably much later in Java. Um, but uh, I was reading it, you know, from the point of view of a guy who writes Ruby every day, 14 years later. And I was like, wow, Kent solved a lot of the problems that we still wrestle with every single day. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I noticed and, and I was thinking about was that, I mean, this book, like you said, is 14 years old. We also have Dave brought up, I think it was two weeks ago, the SICP, you know, where that that was that came out in 1986, you know, it was yeah. like, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And, you know, these are things that people still don't fundamentally use or understand. Mm -hmm. And it, it just amazes me that we have these books that are, you know, this old in an industry that's changing as rapidly as computer science, and yet, you know, these fundamental things are things that we still don't, not all programmers understand and use. Well, I think yeah. the, the basic problem addressed by uh, small tech best practice patterns is that programming at its best is an act of empathy. You're, you're trying to 
think and feel for the person who's going to come later and read this code. And empathy is not something that comes naturally to me. And it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people whose brains work well for programming. So it's something that you have to work on really hard. And short of rewiring the human brain, I mean, which you, in a sense is what you're doing as you as you have those moments where you think, yeah, I'm done, but somebody's going to come and read this and go, what was he thinking? So let me work on this a little bit more. That moment where you're out of your own head and doing something in service for somebody else, um, that's not going away anytime soon. So That's another concept is just that you know, you're writing the code for the other programmers that are going to come along and have to use your code. And it shows in this book that you're thinking about that as opposed to, does it work? Does it work? Does it work? Does it do the job? Well, yeah, but it's ugly as hell. That was uh, one of my favorite things in the book. That was one of the things I really got out of this book was the uh, concept of code as a conversation to the future reader. Um, and I, yeah. I found myself, just since I, I read that from you, I found myself applying that almost daily um, to my own code and to code I'm looking at. I, I was actually criticizing a piece of code that couple days ago and I said, well, this fails the conversation with the reader test, you know, and I, I, uh, I really think that has given me a lot of new insight into how I program. So the, the empathy thing I think is, is really important. I think that you can have the thinking, you can think about, um, having the conversation with the, with the reader of the code or, or the user of your API who will have to read it to understand it at some point. Um, but but still miss what what it is that they actually care about. I had this I had this conversation with a friend just a, you know a day or two ago, and we were talking about some API thing he was building, and he asked my opinion on something, and it was really messed up. It was um, it was a you know a crazy uh, overloaded method. There were you know three different ways to to create one of these uh, classes using the using the new method, and. He's like, oh, well, I just want it to be uh, flexible. I'm thinking of the, the person who's using this. I think it's going to be it's, you – know, you know, I want him to be able to use it however he wants. And I said, no, you're giving him three different methods, but you're not giving them three different names. That's a source of confusion. And yeah. so, so it was actually like a 20-minute conversation about all this. And you know, I, I eventually was able to sway him. But I think that, that uh, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes – to say, you know, the hard part about using an API isn't using it. It's about learning how to use it. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. A, a beautiful thing that happens with programmers when, well, it starts off with an ugly thing that happens with programmers, especially if they're very smart, where they become very, very focused on making sure that their code is right. And, and, and when, and I, that right has a capital R on it and it's like provably right. And, and like, it's a very formal legalistic term of this code is right. And that is the way to do it. And yet it fails the reader test and to, to get somebody to say, you know what, this needs to pass the reader, you know, the, the future reader test. And it doesn't that, by the way, we're 15 minutes into this phone call and we haven't told any Rubyists out there if they should give a crap about small talk best practice patterns. And the answer is, oh, my head, yes, because this book is is it's not just about the low level stuff. It's also about the very, very high level stuff. When we start talking about the specific Ruby advice, there's a line that Kent puts in here that I think is all about you should go talk to your team um, about this. 
and and it's it's not about being right it's about being readable and that in turn becomes right to speak up for a moment for 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 people i think there's a phase of learning to program when you just can't get the computer to do anything you think you're clear in your head yeah when do you get out of that phase because i think (laughs) (laughs) well it's kind of cyclical for me depends on the time of the day but but while you're in that phase i think it's fine to focus on getting the getting the program to work at all and sometimes that's more of a struggle and sometimes less but at some point you 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 get some confidence that you can get stuff to work and then you have this chance to expand your horizons to not to to include more in your sphere of concern than just you and the computer and you can care about somebody who's going to read this later you know you you had something in your uh introduction to this book uh, I think it's kind of weird to geek out over the introduction of a book, but the introduction of this book is actually amazing. The first couple of chapters where you're defining things and setting things up. Uh, but one thing that really stuck with me out of out of it was where you talk about the cycle of programming. And it was basically, you have the idea of what you want the computer to do. So you sit down and you try to make the computer to do that. That changes your idea of what you wanted the computer to do. So you go back to square one and then, you know, trying to make it happen again. And just this cycle of you back and forth with the computer, you know, of what you wanted to do and, and how doing that changes what you wanted to do. And I, I thought that was very great. It reminds me of programming. <laughs> a, a strange thing has happened in the Ruby community lately. Um, and I wanted to get uh, your comment on it. Um, Someone will say, uh, let's use the so-and-so pattern, and the other person will say, so-and-so pattern, that sounds like a Java thing. What do you say to that? It's not a Java thing. It's a programming thing. Well, He's probably um, talking about like the factory, factory, whatever. Well, you know, well, I, I don't think that the examples I've, I've seen uh, weren't, weren't factories. I think it might have been like delegation. Um, you know, and, 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 and what people are reacting to, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking a little bit about the history here because I think what people are reacting to is less that it's the so-and-so pattern and, and, and more that it's the so-and-so pattern and that patterns have gotten an, a kind of an odd association, um, uh, in recent oh, years. Oh, they, they certainly have. They went through the, the hype cycle and, um, people were calling things patterns that weren't patterns and, and, you know, putting, putting the word on books to try and sell books instead of putting the concept inside to try to create value and you know just all that usual stuff so um that certainly has happened i i think that the patterns once you agree so sounds to me like there's two levels of discussion going on there one level of discussion is about what you're programming and the next level of discussion is about what patterns you're going to use in programming and mixing up the two is pretty inefficient if you can um, at in that moment say, okay, well, let's take a step back and we'll, let's talk about what's generically going on here and what pattern we are going to use for this, then you have that discussion and then you can go back into the code and the decision in the code becomes obvious once you've had that discussion. So I'd say that's an opportunity for a higher level discussion, but it's also an opportunity for a rat hole. If one of you is talking about the code and the other is talking about the patterns, you can go spinning around that merry-go-round for hours and hours and hours. 
Does that make sense, Avdi? Yeah, and I think there's also maybe an idea, uh, and I can't remember the quote quote um, that's quoted, but that you know, with a sufficiently powerful language, you you quote don't need patterns because it's just part of the language. Um, I mean, I'm curious how you respond respond to that. Well, so one uh, the first language, no, not the first language. The first <laughs> one of my early languages was Basic, and in the first day that I was learning Basic, I figured out if then else. I just kind of I looked at a bunch of examples and I went, oh, I see. You know, no, there wasn't if then else in the language, but I could figure out there was this pattern of. Uh, uh, con- of conditional go-tos and and unconditional go-tos, and I went, oh, oh, I see this. So there's that there's that pattern. I think then 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 when I learned Pascal, lo and behold, there's if then else. So I don't need the pattern that I used in Basic when I go to Pascal because Pascal just has a language feature for it. And I think that happens over and over again. That we that that's the way that programming languages evolve is the things that you do over and over again and are difficult in in language a when you get to language a prime then that's been automated away the the concepts are still fundamental and there are some it's like you know iteration or recursion uh some you know some some languages those are easy to do in some languages those are hard but an expert programmer doesn't really care about the syntax of the language uh, when they're really thinking about the the problem space and and putting together an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of is part of the problem. I'm just guessing, but um, when people like, for example, after I'd been a Rubyist for a pretty short time, um, I read a, a really great book on Java patterns. I think it was Holab on patterns. And um, it was a really great book, and I enjoyed it. And then I went back to writing Ruby and was trying to incorporate this pattern knowledge, and it really took my Ruby downhill for a while. <laughs> and that's because those patterns aren't quite the same, you know, in Ruby as they are in uh, in Java. And, like, a factory is a great example, whereas in Java you have such a high need for something like that. And in Ruby, it's the need is very small because uh, classes are objects, so a lot of times a factory can just be assigning some class to a variable and calling new on it when you're ready, you know. So uh, it can be that simple. But that is still the factory pattern. It just mm-hmm. doesn't look like the factory pattern from Java. You know, you're still doing it for the same reasons to, you know, make object instantiation dynamic, you know. Uh, but uh, it just looks a lot different. And so I think that leads some people to say, well, Ruby doesn't need a factory pattern. Sure it does. We have it. We assign a class to a variable yeah. and call new. Well, and Ruby has Observer built right in. So if somebody says, let's use the Observer pattern, I'm like, okay, Observer, we're done. Um, uh, Avi, I think the quote you were looking for was from Rich Hickey, the creator of Clojure, who said, uh, patterns are what you get when you run out of language. That, that's interesting. Um, can I can I derail this just a little bit? Um, I'd be interested to talk about some of the uh, patterns that are in the book. I mean, we've been talking for like twenty five <laughs> minutes. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a book involved in there. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it's interesting to talk about you know how how patterns apply. But uh, I, I want to get into some of the examples because I want people to understand uh, some of what this book offers, so that we can get some of these things um, into the conversation a little bit more in the Ruby community. 
So um, does somebody want to just pipe up and, and maybe talk about a pattern that they're using or a pattern that they really were impressed with? Sure. So I uh, saw that the first pattern in the book was composed method. And I was wondering <laughs> if that was on purpose because I love composed method. And I would say I use that like every single day. Um, in fact, it's my favorite way to program. And Kent actually mentions why in his book um, that I... I can start from the high level and just say, okay, I'm going to do this thing and that will involve doing this, then doing this, then doing this. Then I go write all those methods. And he actually points out exactly that use case in the book. So that's one of my favorite patterns and it was the very first one and I was wondering if that was on purpose. Yes, very much on purpose. I think that's the central – if you got that one, everything else kind of follows from that. It's this, this idea of, of – Functional decomposition, having small pieces of stuff that can change independently of other pieces of stuff. And, and then there's, there's more to compose method. There's this idea that everything is occurring at the same level of abstraction. I have to say that for me that kind of epitomizes uh, something that we talk about a lot in the Ruby community, and that is outside-in uh, programming or top-down programming. Where you you know you start at the highest level of abstraction and then you just put the next level of abstraction into the method. Mm -hmm. at, at every level, you're translating from what you want to have happen to how it's going to happen to how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yep. But that's not necessarily a um, like if you if you it's not a linear process because you make all these discoveries along the way, which is why it's not as simple as well. Uh, I just picked up my, my copy of Findlay and Watt, my Pascal textbook from N thousand years ago. And, uh, they have this, this, uh, uh functional decomposition style, top down style and, and programming really doesn't work that way unless you don't learn anything. Right. Um, because you, you, the, the boundaries between the layers are kind of messy and you don't know quite where they should show up. And so you're, you're constantly playing with where things does this belong at this level or some other level or, oh, look, I have the same thing in two places. Let me, let me extract it out. So, uh, it's not as simple as, you know, start, start with the statement, you know, the system works and then decompose from there because you're going to learn a bunch of stuff along the way. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. One, one of my favorites that I was reading, and it was like this light came on for me, was um, – and I think, I think it's a compilation of a couple of different um, concepts that, that I keep hearing and eventually you know, just kind of clicked for me. But it was when you were uh, demonstrating the double dispatch. Mm -hmm. um, where basically you had the example of, you know, integer plus float and float plus integer. Um, it was really interesting because I went through this process in my head where um, I was like, well, you couldn't do that in Ruby because, you know, they're not strongly typed. And then I realized, yeah, but what you're doing is you're, you're calling across to what you're adding in. And so you already know what the types of the two objects are. So then you can handle, handle things. And so it really kind of, for me, broke things down into um, what what do I know? Because you know, if I'm calling integer plus float, I know that the first um, I know that the first object or the 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 thing that's being called on is the um, I know what that is. I know it's an integer. And then um, the second thing was was who can I most effectively send the message to to get the job done? 
and and I had never really thought about that before. You know, I, I typically just do things more procedurally and just keep everything in that one class. And so for me, it kind of opened things up and it's like, no, make the consideration as far as who can best handle this, what's the best message to send them, and what information do I already have that I can provide to them. Ruby has a method called coerce that will let you flip the relationship. Like if you if you have integer plus float and then you end up writing float plus integer – and if you have a coerce, a coercion, it will basically flip it around and make it work. And if you do not understand double dispatch and the meaning behind this, coerce is enough enough rope to shoot yourself in the foot. You will write bad code with it. Yeah, I, I, I thought of Ruby's coerce too when I was reading that pattern. I have to say, like Chuck, I I was really double dispatch was an aha moment for me. I, if composed method was my mm-hmm. old friend, I was glad to see in the book then that. <laughs> Double dispatch and method object were the ahas, you know. But um, coerce is a little uh, strange, actually, because uh, I, I actually found double dispatch more straightforward because uh, the problem with Ruby's uh, coerce is that um, the reason it exists is if you're building some object that you want to be able to add to integers, it matters if that object comes on the left side or the right side of the plus sign. And so when you do it in Ruby, you have to do it two ways because first you have to define the plus operator, overload that, so that if it comes on the left side, then it can handle the addition. And then you have to define the coerce method so that if it comes on the right side, Ruby's objects can handle that conversion, right? Um, But with double dispatch, you can actually get rid of that problem in that you could... Uh, you know, it, now I guess the downside there is that it, you'd have to reopen all of Ruby's classes to add the correct uh, type method to them so they would dispatch correctly. But I, I, I don't know. I found it more elegant and easier to follow in the des- double dispatch example. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to take a real example and code it up both ways and, and see which one was e- easier to work with over time. One of the challenges with double dispatch is you have n times m uh, uh, implementations of all those methods, and adding a new one can cause. And then if you if you add a new one, say so if I've got you know integer float and uh, I don't know a vector, and I have and then I add a matrix to that, then I may have to go add three more implementations or four more implement. Yeah, so, so, so Kent, Kent, how come you didn't talk about uh, like the small tuck numerics generality system? Oh, because I, I I hated it. it well, it was pretty <laughs> gross, it was pretty gross, but it, it I, yeah, so I, I wandered off from small talk, uh, you know, in the late eighties and didn't do much professionally with it after that. So I don't know what became the state of the art in small talk for dealing with that soup. Uh, did, did that ever go away, or is that still? Yeah, 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 it's all it's all done with double dispatch now. The, okay. The the different coercing arithmetic types is all done with double dispatch now. The okay. the previous way was you had each class had a generality associated with it, and if you had a less general number trying to uh, do its arithmetic with a more general number, then you'd coerce the less general one to be more general. So you'd you'd. Uh, like fl- floats and fractions, a fraction would turn itself into a float before you do the addition, for example. So that, that is what you just described is pretty much how numbers work in Ruby. Yeah. 
that's how we do yep. it. Everything old is new again. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, um, one other thing that I noticed in here that uh, was, I never really thought of it as a pattern, but it made a lot of sense is in the collections chapter. Um, there were a lot of ways that you explained, hey, look, um, Smalltalk provides you with this convenient way of handling uh, this thing. So then you talk about select and reject and detect and index uh, or inject and, you know, all of these different things. And we have a lot. I think we have all of those in Ruby. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's a really convenient way of accessing um, and iterating over your collections. And to me, it was kind of a, you should get to know these features in the language. You know, it, it really wasn't mm -hmm. so much of a, you know, this is how you implement this. It's more of a, this is here, and if you get to know the language, then you can take advantage of it. And I thought that was a, an, just an interesting approach because in, in Ruby, a lot of times I'll see some people doing a, an array.each do blah, 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 and what they're effectively doing is collect. And, you right. know, they could just go ahead and say, you know, uh, array.collect, blah and you know they get whatever they needed by you know giving it a block that transforms whatever was in the array and so uh you know it, it's an interesting pattern to me to be know what your language does as opposed to set things up in this way well uh, and the reason i wrote that down uh, very explicitly like that is because I, I also saw lots of of uh code where somebody was essentially doing a collect and uh, but they were using do to do it. And so I thought, well, there is, th there's an underlying problem. Why is that method there? Why is collect there? Well, there's this underlying problem that you have this, that you need to transform a collection into something where the elements are derived from the elements of the original collection. So that just happens over and over again, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, five times a day when you're programming hard and so call it out and say, hey, there is this problem that we all have and there is this simple solution. The equivalent, if you're in Java, you would need to – you also need to write a collect pattern, but the implementation is going to be more than one method because you don't – you know, you have to – Okay, so you have to allocate the resulting collection and, you know, use this variable name to, to describe that. And then you have to, here's how you format the, the loop. And then now you have the problem solved. If you're in Java, you have one kind of solution. If you're in Smalltalk, yeah, a different solution. If you're in Ruby, the solution is very similar to the Smalltalk solution. The syntax is a little bit different, but the problem's the same, right? That's just a thing that happens because we program. Right. I have a. I want to riff off, off that real quick, um, just because you know. You know, I've been I've been um, uh, translating some of these examples to Ruby, and I'm kind of of split mind as I'm doing it because you know, Smalltalk has a very simple, uh, very small syntax, um, uh, small and elegant. And so on the one side of my brain, I'm thinking this is so uh, simple and elegant in the Smalltalk code, and then I'm also realizing on the other side, this Ruby, this Ruby code, there's a there's a a specific for this particular case, there's a specific, um, really concise syntax just encoded into the Ruby language to handle this case because you do it so often. It's basically, you know, like they've taken the pattern and encoded it into the language, um, and so the Ruby version is actually a bit more concise. And I'm curious 
um, how you feel like at this at this stage, how you feel, you know, do you naturally gravitate uh, to the, the language with the really simple syntax and predictable syntax or 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 towards the languages that have all these all this uh, syntax sugar like Ruby? I naturally gravitate to the languages I can get paid for writing code in. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> it's, it is very natural. So, uh, you know, at at, uh, uh, at Facebook, I write a lot of PHP code. And my PHP code doesn't necessarily look like everybody else's PHP code. I'm, I'm trying to apply the patterns, you know, and in the sense of how can I write this so that other people can really understand it. But... Then, you know, each language gives you a different set of constraints for what's easy to express and what's more difficult to express. And, and my goal is to write idiomatic, uh, but very readable code in whatever language I'm using. So that kind of going back to the, um, you, uh, had the example of, you know, do versus collect. Um, Glenn Vanderberg and I have kind of played around with that idea a little and used it to um, uh, kind of derive a way to teach Ruby's iterators to people. And we used it in a training we did uh, at one time, and it's very effective. So if you ever want to understand Ruby's iterators, here's a great trick. Um, we uh, give you each, and, uh, you know, almost everybody understands each immediately. So it's very simple, which would be the equivalent of small talks do. And then um, we write the other iterators in uh, each. So, you know, we say, okay, we want to go over this list of items and transform every item into something else. Um, and that's, uh, you know, collect or, or map in Ruby. Um, and we write that using each. So make the, you know, a resulting array each over each of the items, changing them and putting them into that array and then return the resulting array, you know. And what it does is, is exactly what Kent was saying. If you write the pattern in Java, it looks different, right? But once you've done that with the iterators, then you see, oh, whenever I'm doing this, this making an array, transforming items, putting them in there one at a time and returning that array, I meant to say map. And so then if you're reading your code later and you see that, array each return the array then uh, you're like oh I meant map and you just change it to map so it turns out to be a great way to learn them I think yeah, yeah, yeah James I, ju I just want to say what you actually meant to say was collect not map no I, I was pretty <laughs> sure I meant map actually <laughs> just like when I said detect what I really meant was find and anyway um, so we're getting kind of to the end of our time before we do the picks and I wanted to ask some of the questions that people had put on the blog uh, regarding this most of these questions are for Kent wait, um, wait 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 before you do that <laughs> I, so I am the biggest fanboy of Kent and I have like taken all of my Ritalin in one dose so that I would not f completely freak out and fanboy <laughs> but I didn't get the chance to ask my question can I ask my question ask away ask Okay, and so you shall this receive. Is, and this is exactly uh, where I'm talking about Ruby programmers. You absolutely need this, and this book is also very, very high level. So, I think it's funny that we. I'm really glad that that Chuck, you picked something out of the back half of the book because I was worried that Kent is going to think that we all read like the first ten pages of the book and that said, "Yeah, I've got enough." Uh, <laughs> because my question is from the from the third pattern in the book, which is the shortcut constructor method. 
Um, and the motivation for this pattern is you're building something so often from other data types, you're, you're, you're cobbling it together, that it finally makes sense to, instead of writing this big, long conversion method, I'm just going to go ahead and monkey patch. And Kent doesn't use the word monkey patch because that didn't come into extant slang for another 15 years. But I'm going to go monkey patch this other class so that I can send it a message and it will generate my other class, right? So in, in Smalltalk, you can send the at message to an integer or to a float, um, and you give it another integer or float, and you get back a point object. And there's a, a, a great note. He says, it puts a burden on the programmer to remember the message because it looks like it can be easily mistaken for existing language syntax. Um, so he says, represent op object creation as a message to one of the arguments to the constructor method. Add no more than three of these shortcut constructor <laughs> methods per system you develop. Now, um, Your Holiness uh, the Beck, if I if I may, um, I have taken this and interpreted this scripture to mean if you monkey patch, you have to elevate the visibility of that monkey patch so that it is visible to the entire team and. Uh, so we've started adapting like uh, specific idioms. Like we have a patches directory in every Rails project that we write, and you are expected as a programmer coming to the project, you're actually expected to sit down and read that patches directory because it's it's changing everything in the system, right? It's monkey patching array, it's monkey patching string to do different things. And I've found that if you create a patches directory and then all of a sudden there's 15 files in there. I've found that I can make a pretty good argument that 12 of those have to go away um, because it's just too freaking complex. It's just too patched. Um, and so I try to actually adhere to the no more than three of these per system that you develop because it's a great team learning. I, I'm curious to know if you have – if that was the motivation is because this is a, a surprise gotcha and has that rule held up in other languages as you move forward? So most languages – wow, there's a bunch of questions there. I'll try and keep track okay. of it. Okay. Sorry. It's the downside of having programmed for 40 years. Um, the um, So I just pulled the number three out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to be aware of the costs and benefits of what I'm doing. When I have a shortcut constructor like that, um, I'm really adding to the syntax of the language in a more fundamental way, in a more surprising way than, oh, here's another class and ho here's another method for that class. Everybody expects that. These yeah. shortcuts are, are – are they're, they, they're more fundamental than that. You, you, they're a surprise and you have to get used to them. I think what I was reacting to was in the early days of of the commercialization of small talk, there were people who just would fall in love with something like this. Mm -hmm. And they, they would have hundreds of these and you could not read the code. If you just walked in, it just it didn't even look like small talk code anymore because there were all these funny characters and what did they mean and they're just so condensed like what? On the other hand – uh, not having at to create points, you know, when I do graphic programming in in uh, in Java or in in JavaScript, huh? where uh, creating a point is so hard they don't even do it, right? Yeah. They 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 pass around x and y separately, even though they go together. How stupid uh -huh. is that? Right. So so there's a place for this kind of syntactic opt optimization, but. 
but be aware that that you're it's it's special vocabulary it's our slang here and if somebody new comes in they're going to have to learn that before they can even talk to you mm-hmm. there was a critique of lisp that i read 20 years ago that basically said every Lisp program becomes a DSL and as a result, Lisp is a very autistic language and autistic is a autism is a, a disorder where you cannot communicate your internal state to external observers and yeah, you come down, you sit down and you've got this DSL that you can't understand and three years ago I worked on a project that had like 30 or 40 monkey patches on it and it was just exactly that there, was, there were a couple of programmers there myself included I got caught up in the fever who were in love with monkey patching everything always all the time and it eventually it, it bit our ass clean off I mean it didn't just bite us on the butt it just it, 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 it killed us um, but I've noticed an insurgence lately and I wonder if you see this distinction as well um, in the past year, I've seen an, an emergence of Ruby DSLs that are actually built out of a strict set of idioms, which ends up – you can look at the DSL and go, oh, that is very, very readable, and yet it is also made out of Ruby constructs that I recognize. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you – like you know, like the, the, the solar plug-in for searching in Rails, you, you type searchable do – and you go, oh, that's a block. It, I, I get this. I could, I could probably debug this if I had to. Have, have you seen that as well? That was always our goal with, with Smalltalk Code is to create a language that somebody could read um, but that was built out of Smalltalk constructs. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. very, very hard, say, in Java because the, this, you just don't have uh, much syntax to play with and you have lots of noise. Yeah. Um, in Smalltalk, because there's so little noise, it was easier to make something that looked like a DSL if you squint at it, at it with one eye. And if you squint at it with the other eye, you just go, oh, it's just Smalltalk. Yeah. I yeah. Wanna, I want to say one more uh, thing since Dave mentioned uh, that we don't talk about anything in the back of the book. I, I have tons of notes, so I could just sit here and talk all day. But uh, <laughs> it's two of the later chapters in the book I thought were uh, particularly impressive. Um, one being classes, which it's a short chapter, admittedly, but this is a chapter entirely about naming. Um, and we all know, you know, that naming is one of the famously hard problems in uh, computers. So uh, it, it turns out there's an entire chapter just about picking good names. And I just totally love that. Um, and then the chapter immediately following that is actually like um, how to format your code which when I was reading the table of contents at the beginning of the book, I was like, wow, that's kind of weird in a book like this, uh, I thought at the time. Uh, but then by the time I had gotten through the code as a conversation to the reader aha moment, um, then I realized that that made perfect sense because you, you want to format your code so that it is uh, you know, readable to the person that comes after you. So uh, those were two chapters I loved later in the book, and I was very glad to see it included. Yeah, very, very nice. Um, I, I, I feel bad cutting you guys off, but uh, we're going to go way over. And I do want to ask some of the questions that people uh, posted on the blog. So um, let me just ask a few of these, and then we'll, we'll kind of see where things go from here. Um, w- one of the first questions that was posed was um, by Raphael, and I know I'm going to kill this name, Luke, Luke Anyway, he says, um, I recognize some ideas from software best practice patterns in later works by other authors. 
e.g. I think Clean Code by Robert Martin can be seen as the heir to software best practice patterns. Do you agree? So uh, it's a yes and no. The, um, the, the yes part, the similarity is that um, it's worth caring about your programs, that it's worth um, taking uh, a lot of it, – it's worth pouring all of yourself into your into – your, into your, the, the act of programming. Where I see a difference is uh, who you're doing it for. A lot of the – so I'll say – I'll talk about software craftsmanship in general. A lot of software craftsmanship stuff that I hear seems to be more about the craftsman and small talk best practice patterns is calling for you to do to, – to take that care with your programs for the sake of other people, not for the sake of your own feelings. Or I'll I'll feel bad if I don't do this. I'm kind of OCD about code, but I try to differentiate when I am futzing with the formatting because it'll make a difference for somebody reading it, and when I'm doing it just because I, you know, it's the the light switches and the using the right spoon or whatever. Does that make sense? Yep, that makes sense. Uh, the next two questions have to do more with the future of small talk. One is, what's your opinion of the future of small talk, which I think is pretty general. But then he asks, do you think the latest small talks community efforts such as Pharaoh, Seaside, and Amber, previously known as JTalk, etc., could put small talk again in the limelight? Uh, limelight, uh, honestly, I don't think so. But I think uh, small talk has a vibrant cult following, and I think that's a great position for a language. One of the other questions asked by that same guy uh, that I think kind of relates to what we were just saying there. Uh, do you think small talk is worth learning by current programmers? Yes. Why? Absolutely. Because you have no choice but to use objects. And and I think this is this is where I would criticize Ruby. In small talk, the the objects are right there an inch under the glass. You don't have a text editor that works on a stream of characters that's going to get interpreted, that's going to eventually turn into objects. You're working with the objects. You point at them, you click at them, you edit them. They're right there. You have no choice but to interact with the objects. Oh, huh, interesting. That, I think that's a very good point, and, and, um, but to uh, maybe, I don't know, kind of in defense of Ruby, I think that's kind of a strength and a weakness of Ruby, right? Like that it's it's bad and that you're right and i think that's why rubyists are slower to adopt things that we figured out in small talk 15 years ago you know uh that about how to do objects right because it, it is like a step removed but at the same time I, I love that like ruby can double as a scripting language and let you do mm -hmm. some you know low level you know fill up a hash or array or something run it through a few transformations and spit something useful out, you know, which I think is maybe a little bit more ceremony in a language like small talk, right? Or mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's definitely the trade-off in small talk. You have this, I, you know, the cliche walled garden, you have this place. And, and as long as you're inside of small talk, things are much easier. And when you go outside of thought, Small talk things get quite a bit harder. So, so uh, throwing a script together is not a trivial thing to do in small talk. If you're 
accessing external systems. I made a comment on the rogues a couple of weeks ago that Rails actually encourages some bad programming practices because although we want to do everything top down, the very first thing you do in Rails once you've decided what you want to write is Rails G migration, right, or Rails G model, and you you end up building bottom up from the database. And uh, a little secret here is that quote is actually a retooling. That that statement I made is a retooling of something I tweeted uh, several months ago about Smalltalk, which is somebody asked me why should I look Smalltalk look at Smalltalk, and I said if you're interested in doing object oriented programming, Smalltalk makes it really freaking hard to write bad object code. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it it actually the language pushes you. Towards a top-down, and it is. It's, it, I love that phrase. Can't the, the the objects are there an inch under the glass? That everything's an object, and it's always an object. And stop trying to turn them into procedural, you know, things, because the language will fight you every every inch of the way. And I love that, and, and it will make you a better better Ruby programmer to go learn Smalltalk and let Smalltalk have its way with your brain for a few months. Yeah, the, the people freak out when they realize there's no main. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's also no case statement. Which is, I think, probably one of the one of the weirdest things about programming in Smalltalk, but it really forces you to to you know use the double dispatch and and use the use the method dispatch machinery of the language. Yeah, we just call it a message. Yeah, <laughs> that that's the case statement. And if you and, and if you like, well, why why would you have a case statement? That's a yeah. You have collections and messages. What else do you need? Yep. Yeah, and and your main can turn into a sewer main anyway. So we'll just. I've seen it happen. Anyway, um, so another question is is uh, by Eric Hutzelman. He said, um, I thought I heard a couple of years ago that you were working on a Ruby Best Practice Patterns book with one of the ex-Hashrocket guys. Any truth to this? Any plans for making a Ruby version of this book? Well, we had one conversation, and it didn't go any further. Um, but I, I, in preparation for this podcast, I listened to all of your previous episodes – um, and so I, you're redeemed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, congratulations. <laughs> that's why we do, let him on. <laughs> do I get, do I get my coffee mug now? You wasted um, how many hours? <laughs> oh, it's not wasted. I was shoveling manure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just going to let that one sit. Um, <laughs> so I heard last week you guys were talking about how you'd like to see, patterns in ruby so here's my here's my proposal um uh, uh i'll rent a fishing lodge up here and we'll get us together uh for three days of the fishing lodge and we'll go fishing in the morning and we'll write in the afternoon and the evening just to kind of kick things off and get things started you'll do the writing i'll be the editor and we'll end up after a few months with the ruby and or rails best practice patterns out of that process i am so in squee i gotta go fishing as long as i don't have to clean the fish i'm totally cool with that. <laughs> i'll clean your like, fish too okay <laughs> no that's that sounds great i think i think that um that uh at least some subset of this group can uh can get into a project like that i would love to see a a good tactical patterns book for ruby and just like that i'm back out subset <laughs> I, I am clean your own fish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely for it. I would love to have that book in Ruby, and and I would love to do it with these bunch of guys. Rogues, well, rogues, rogues retreat. Rogues retreat. Rogues. Oh, sorry. 
<laughs> and and it would be great if fish. we could be if okay with that, that's fun too. <laughs> Um, it, it would be great if we could if we could get maybe the Prags to do something creative with with um, commercializing it, you know, making sure that it has wide distribution, but there's also enough um, capital flowing around it to keep everybody's interest. That actually answers another one of the questions our listeners had for you. Would there ever be an electronic version of Small Talk Best Practice Patterns? That is that is out of my the the small talk one is out of my hands. It's a, it's up to Pearson whether they want to do it or not. And um, I wrote my editor, and uh, he did not write back, so I don't have any more information about that. I don't bug, think bug Pearson if you want it. I don't think some of these publishers really understand the ecosystem for the people who would be buying this book because if it, if it were electronic, you'd be selling them like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, I'm not sure. five dollars or something. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I think I think we we single-handedly drove up the price of of this book briefly on on Amazon cuz I, I could swear that, too, yeah. that right when we announced it the price seemed to get ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah. They had to mine. print more. <laughs> I got <laughs> mine before the gold rush, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one other question that I that I saw uh, from Don Cox the, the last one about the ebook version was from Don as well. Um, that I'm interested in is is how do you balance between learning new or current things versus going back to old, uh, maybe say ten years or more old um, publications. How do you balance? Well, I I make sure that I do some of each. So I recently read uh, reread uh, Parnass's on the criteria for decomposing. Uh, 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 systems into modules or something i don't remember the exact title but i i recently reread that i mean the the people that came before me were really really smart and had a lot of this stuff already figured out so uh, you know i try and stay up to date with what people are publishing that's interesting now but um uh, i try and take a part of my day and just read and some of the stuff that I just read is things that uh, that came out a long time ago too. It it always amazes me, like monkey patching. You can take something that in modern modern day we have this idiom and everybody understands it, and then you go back twenty five years and here's Kent Beck saying, "Well, here's this rule of thumb that I kind of feel like I have," and then you go back twenty five more years and then you'll find that uh, Edgar Dykstra has a proof. You know, like he actually mathematically proved. You know the you know the Dunbar number for code or whatever it is, and that's yeah. It's I don't know. It, we forget sometimes that going back to you know Donald Knuth and stuff like that from the sixties and seventies is sometimes really really worthwhile because these guys were dealing with first principles and they were very very rigorous. This is before computer science got really sloppy, and um, and started relying on a lot of lore. And yeah, you can go back and find like proofs for why you should do this. I love that. All right. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and cut things off. We're going to get to the picks. We are right at an hour recording, I believe, right now. So, uh, you know, we're, we're a little over what we try and target. So um, we'll try and get through these pretty fast. And uh, uh, one thing regarding the picks that I've been considering, and uh, I want the panel's opinion that I'm kind of curious about everyone else's opinion too, is I thought about putting together a mailing list it would go out every week with the picks in it and maybe just a few thoughts from the week's episode. Um, do you guys, is, do you think anyone would be interested in that or? 
I think we should ask the listeners. Like the show notes, kind of? That's kind of interesting. Yeah, not not necessarily the show notes, but maybe a quote or two, or but but really the picks people seem to want to have those like right away. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we could do an RSS feed of just the picks. Hmm. Maybe that's a good idea too. Um, I'll I'll put out a survey for the listeners. Um, all right, well let's get into the picks. Let's go ahead and let David go first. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm just going to throw out two titles. Um, sequel cookbook from the O'Reilly Press and Joe Selko's uh, Trees and Hierarchies in Sequel for Smarties. Um, I've recently had to do some uh, heavy-duty rails and Ruby lifting with some really, really, really smart programmers, and I am staggered to find um, that a lot of them don't know much beyond uh, the join syntax in uh, Sequel. And so if you've ever wondered how Axis Nested Set works or if you've ever wondered how uh, any of these membership things work, uh, you know, some of the, the, the really tricky containery bits. Um, and I, I realize we just talked about Smalltalk, but uh, SQL is also a really great legacy language to learn. Um, it's a very, very powerful query language. You can do a heck of a lot more with it than you think you can. Um, I wrote an adventure game in uh, Postgres PLSQL about uh, six years ago uh, that you literally could, you know, dr- pick things up and drop things and move around in the game just to prove that uh, that PSQL was a Turing tar pit. Um, and I said I was going to do a quick pick, and I'm still talking, so I'm going to stop there. All right, James. That was hilarious. <laughs> I, I did that because Josh said, don't pick me next. So <laughs> Anyway. No, Josh, really, it's fine. If you want to go now, you know. <laughs> um, okay, so the one time we run horribly over on time, and I'm usually the guy that does one pick and all that. Well, this time I have three. Uh, I saved my uh, Kent Beck fanboyism for the end here. Um, since I didn't get it in at the beginning. Um, but he has this set of videos uh, on test-driven development. Uh, you can get them from the Pragmatic Programmers. And um, it's four episodes. I can't remember how long they are, but uh, you know, it's like a couple hours if you add them up, I think. Um, and they're actually really good videos. I still use Trick, as I learned from those videos back when I watched them. Uh, like one of my favorite things in them is that uh, Kent says... Um, uh, when you're about to run a test and see if it passes or fails or whatever, guess, make a guess. Mm-hmm. Because if you, you know, if you don't guess and you just get the answer, well, then you don't learn anything. But if you guess and it surprises you, then you have a better chance to learn something, you know. And I use that all the time when I'm programming. Is that calling your shot? Calling your yep. shot. Absolutely. Right. I, I, I love that terminology. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, uh, there's these, and then I just wanted to point out that, like, um, the Ruby community is currently obsessed with isolated tests, and that's been all over the place in discussions, it's been on Destroy All Software, etc. Uh, one of the four videos in this is on isolated tests. So, you know, as usual, can't ahead of the curve and, and teaching us all this stuff before we knew we wanted to learn it. So, um, I definitely recommend checking out those videos. And then uh, another pick that I saw this week that was absolutely great. People are always asking me um, uh, what project should I go read the code for uh, to learn a lot about. Um, and I, I know I've said publicly in the past, REST client's a great read, and I, I stand by that choice. It's a great read. 
Um, but I, there was a new library released this week by some guy I've never heard of before, Avdi Grimm, uh, that is just <laughs> a short little um, uh, rapper library. He invented keyword params for Ruby uh, in this library, and he basically just used Ruby's metaprogramming uh, to make real keyword params. So, like, you specify them, like, as a hash when you're calling the method and they end up as local variables inside the method themselves. And the reason I say that this is this one is a great read is uh, the main uh, code of it is, uh, like, 42 lines, the main file that does most of the stuff. And it's an awesome use of Ruby's metaprogramming where every single line is there for a very important specific reason. And if you go through and look and you figure out what each of those lines does, then you will understand a great deal of Ruby metaprogramming. Like, try to remove that thread local variable he put in there to figure out why it's there, you know, or uh, things like that. Um, so it's great. It's 42 lines and really will help you understand Ruby's metaprogramming. So that's my second pick. And I had three this week. Um, I was searching around uh, on some Arduino projects uh, a buddy of mine had been working on. I got sidetracked from there, and I ended up on some steampunk computer sites and stuff. And I found this awesome site where they make, like, steampunk computer keyboards. And they're now taking pre-orders on this whole steampunk laptop, which I have to say is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen with these gears and stuff on the back and it's way more than I can afford so I'm telling all our Ruby Rose listeners you guys can just chip in and buy me this okay and that would be great uh, no I was telling you this so you could go there and actually uh, oogle over all the pictures just like I do because I think they're cool so I'll post the link in the show notes but you should go check out these steampunk computers okay that's it I'm really done all right so you mentioned the masters of the universe of the and Kent and uh, we'll move on to another Master of the Universe, Josh. Okay. Um, a, a master in some other universe, maybe. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let me see. The, my first pick is, um, I don't know, this has been floating around for a, for a while, but I don't think we've done it as a pick before. Um, there's a site called CoderWall, CoderWall.com, which um, gamifies your, your, um, your existence on GitHub. And so can get uh, achievements for uh, having uh, projects in various languages or contributing to someone's other someone else's open source project, things like that. Um, and you know, it's 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 kind of a, a nice, clever way to get an idea of what someone is up to and what their uh, you know what their uh, what their open source life is about. Um, and uh, you know, if I if I look at myself, I can see that I only have seven achievements. So um, I, I need to do more open source work. Um, so that, that's CoderWall. It's still in beta. It's been in beta for a while. Um, I hope they uh, they uh, figure out what how they're going to make some money and turn this into a real uh, real cool product. And it's pretty cool already. Um, okay, and then my other my other pick is um, also GitHub related, and that's um, it, it's sort of a product endorsement. There's this. Pinktocat shirt, you know the you know GitHub has this uh, lovely Octocat logo, and um, the, for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, they're doing a pink version of it because pink is the breast cancer uh, awareness color, and uh, they're they're lovely T-shirts. But the the thing that I wanted to to 
commend GitHub for is you know, GitHub is a real um, it you know they have women who work there, but they have a small percentage of their employees are women, and they've they've been having conversations about you know even online on Twitter about oh gee you know we really want more women in the company what do we do about that this this is a I think a really brilliant move on their part is they jump in they support breast cancer awareness month they uh you know they put a product up there for it um this seems like a really good way to engage a community that they want to be better represented uh, within their company so and besides that it's a good cause and it's a cute shirt so that's my pick all right super it sounds interesting all right uh avdi all right, so um, I just got back from uh, from RubyConf, where I stayed at the Marriott for sixty bucks a night, um, which is why my pick is Priceline, which is something that I had been aware of, and you know, I mean, everybody's aware of it, but I hadn't actually gotten around to figuring out what this whole Priceline thing was all about, and I finally did, and. Um, I'm very happy I did, except that I feel kind of embarrassed that um, I wasn't booking uh, booking hotels using it before now. Um, so uh, ridiculously good deals to be had on there. And uh, there's a there's a, uh, a screencast by Greg Pollock, um, which points out a few extra tricks for uh, for nailing a really good deal. Um, highly recommended if you travel a lot. Uh, second pick. Is one of is is one of these ruby gems that uh, I always just kind of it's one of these really old gems that I always kind of assume everybody knows about, and then I I talk to people at conferences and I realize that nobody knows about it. Uh, so there's this piece of code which has actually been been coded up in a few different places um, called XMP uh, for Ruby, and it's it's for for uh, formatting examples basically you annotate you you take some ruby source code you annotate it with special comments and you run it through xmp and xmp fills in the value of the the evaluated value of the lines that you annotated uh so if you have one plus one on a line and then you put the special comment it'll fill in two at the end of the line and um and so this is really handy for uh for posting little examples of code so if you install the R code tools gem. Uh, among other things, you will get a uh, you will get a nice XMP filter uh, executable, which you can pipe stuff through, and it's got a whole bunch of options for how it formats the the output. Uh, very very handy for doing examples and other things. Um, and uh, and actually, uh, if you take a look at that library that James was mentioning, uh, I did kind of a crazy thing where I actually implemented the tests uh, using XMP filter. Um, so uh, if you weren't using it already, check it out. There's a TextMate bundle and or an Emacs mode that uses XMP, if I recall correctly. Yeah, uh, if you get R code tools, it's actually uh, bundled in R code tools is the Emacs mode for it, which is super handy because you can just Perfect. say XMP and it fills everything in uh, in the buffer that you're working on. Nice. Yes, and in TextMate, we do support it in the normal Ruby bundle. Yes. That, that, that sounds awesome. All right. Um, let's get some picks from Kent. Uh, so I have three, um, and I'll try and describe them briefly. The first one is a rooibos tea. Uh, it uh, tastes good. It's I find it calming. Uh, there's no caffeine. It's loaded with uh, uh, all that good stuff. 
and it's a mild diuretic, so I don't have to worry about sitting there and programming too long. The second one is the D3. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I've actually, I have branded that as the Pomodoro technique. The Pomodoro. <laughs> Man, Kent, you were my favorite panelist before you said that. Now I was retire the category. That's great. I was laughing long before I unmuted. (laughs) Uh, Okay, my second my second pick uh, is uh, the D three project uh, from Michael Bostock, who works at Square now um, and was at Stanford. It is an awesome visualization library for javascript that lets you make all kinds of amazing graphics with uh very little work if you're willing to twist your head around a fair amount um i'm using it to uh to visualize uh complicated structures of software and uh and using this force force based layout um uh uh, and he has a beautiful implementation of that. Um, anyway, you can do amazing stuff and uh, very quickly, and it's a, and it's interesting code as well. Interesting, the API design is uh, is not something that I'm f- used to, so I'm learning a lot from that. And my last pick is a set of books by a man named Philip Ball uh, from Oxford Press, and the three books are called uh, Shape, Flow, and Branches. And they're little books, the beautifully illustrated, and um, they talk about the uh, kind of design in nature. What are the natural forces that act on design? Uh, my uh, current crazy quest is to understand the natural forces that are acting on software design, and I think there are really strong forces acting on software design because we inadvertently come to the same conclusions so frequently there has to be some kind of natural law at work and nobody understands what it is so um the that's something that i'm reading to understand how uh natural forces in the real world affect physical structures all right very interesting i guess i'm last um a couple of picks the first one is um I started playing with uh, trying to get Cassandra to hook into Rails the way that some of the other uh, ORMs do. Um, I, I have my own little one called Sandra. And uh, so I was working on the Sandra Rails gem, you know, just like you have uh, DM Rails and SQL Rails for uh, Data Mapper and SQL. And I was having the hardest time getting it to work. So I went and looked at these other um, these other plugins and lo and behold, I made this discovery about Rails that is so incredibly useful uh, if you're writing gems or plugins that need to hook into Rails. And it's actually called Rail Ties. And I know it's been around forever, but I didn't realize just what it did. And so if you want to check it out, it's a great way of adding initializers, uh, modifying configuration, setting other things up. Uh, just handy, handy stuff if you're trying to extend Rails in specific ways and you want to add uh, certain functionality in and uh, initialize certain behaviors in your Rails app. So Railtize is, is definitely a pick there. Um, one other thing that I've done recently is I've upgraded some of my audio equipment. Uh, 
And so um, I was using this Behringer microphone, and I decide I decided to go ahead and finally break down and buy the microphone that I have been drooling over for the last six months, and that is the Heil PR40. I think it makes my voice sound incredibly good. It it just I, I don't know what it is about the quality of my voice uh, when I talk into it, but I think it sounds so so nice. And uh, so I'm also going to have to recommend that. And um, I was looking for some new headphones and things because the ones that I had, I had some Bose headphones that were noise canceling and they were pretty nice. But I, I kind of wanted something that I could put on over my ears, um, you know, that were maybe a little, little bit more comfortable and uh, had some great sound. And so I was looking around and I had several people mention to me that I ought to check out Dan Benjamin's podcast recommendations. And uh, he puts out a recommendation list every year, and so I actually bought the headphones off of that. But his recommendations are really top-notch. And so if you go and look at – in, uh, you can Google HiveLogic um, podcasting recommendations, and you'll find them. And I'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, that, that's a good place to start if you're looking for um, what you need to get, uh, get a top-end uh, podcasting rig. If you're not interested in a top-end podcasting rig, then I highly recommend, and this is my final pick, that you go listen to the latest episode of Podcast Answer Man. Uh, you can find it on iTunes, and uh, or you can go to podcastanswerman.com. The latest episode, um, he starts playing with an, a digital audio recorder, and then he plugs a mic into it and kind of explains, you know, this is the bare-bones rig, that, or this is the bare-bones setup I would get, and then this is the next thing I would get, and this is the next thing I would get. And so if you're trying to build your... Uh, podcasting setup piece by piece, then what he recommends is really a great way to go. So those are my picks. And uh, with that, we will wrap things up. Um, Before we do, Chuck, can I talk about the book club? Absolutely. It's not like we've, you know, we're short on time or anything, right? Right. Um, so uh, this uh, was our book club episode for uh, this month, of course, which was Small Talk Best Practice Patterns. Um, the next book we're going to be reading is Eloquent Ruby by Russ Olson. Um, and it's a book about uh, kind of along similar veins of uh, uh, small talk best practice patterns, but with more of a Ruby focus. And it, it's different in that it's a lot more real world Ruby, I would say. Um, and uh, it, it, it may raise Josh's blood pressure a little when he gets to the section about uh, why people just use hashes and arrays instead of making objects. Um, but anyways, it, it's a very well-reviewed book. Uh, it receives great marks. And I read Russellson's first book and really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, it's good stuff. So that's what we're reading. We're not going to do it in one month for several reasons. Uh, some of the rogues are busy in November. And uh, also it's a bigger book than we usually do. So we're going to give you two months and we will talk about it on uh, we will talk about it on uh, December, the beginning of December. So, eloquent Ruby, pick it up, uh, follow along, and we'll talk about that in September or December. Sorry, December. Yeah, we'll talk about it next September. Oh wait, all right. Um, I, I think that's it. We're gonna, uh, like I said, we're gonna wrap this up. I do want to mention that you can get this in iTunes if you just look up Ruby Rogues. You can find us there. Um, you can also uh, subscribe. You can subscribe on the website. Uh, if you have any topics, go to rubyrogues.com and click on request a topic. And uh, we will definitely, we do, we do take those into consideration. We've just had some awesome opportunities lately. So I think next week we're talking to Corey Haynes. Am I right on that? 
Yes, you're right on that. Okay. So, um, you know, just, just some great opportunities. And then if you're going to any conferences, uh, look for us because uh, several of us are um, are going to be at different conferences. I think Avdi and Jay, uh, James are going to be at Ruby Midwest. I'm going to ApacheCon. Um, I think some of the other guys are planning on going to some uh, later this year and early next year. So uh, keep an eye out for us. Come let us know what you think, and uh, we will catch you next week. When I gave the my RailsConf keynote, it was really, really helpful because I realized that every idea that I'd ever worked on took 20 years to to see widespread adoption. So that gives me a lot of – when I'm feeling impatient, I just go, oh, has it been 20 years yet? Oh, no. I've, <laughs> oh, I've only been doing this for eight years. I can't expect anything to have changed.